Good afternoon. If we could get started. Welcome all. Welcome again. I'm delighted to see you. For anyone uh, who might not have been there earlier, I'm Anne Marie Slaughter and the Dean of the School, and I'm delighted to see everyone back. We have for you uh, the simulation of a National Security Council meeting with a scenario that I worry is all too realistic. You have it before you. It describes uh, the assassination of General Musharraf in Pakistan. I'm sorry, the assassination attempt uh, and the seizure of one of Pakistan's nuclear weapons facilities. The president has been briefed on the situation, and he is on his way in Air Force One. It appears that he's going to be accompanied by our Secretary of Defense. Our participants have decided that, as in the real world, he's probably on Air Force One working out uh, what's going to happen before the meeting, but he will be joining us. <laughs> the principals uh, are now gathered absent the Secretary of Defense, to discuss the situation. I will introduce them uh, from my far right. Uh, we have uh, the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Colonel Robert Gordon, otherwise is uh, MPA Class of 1989. He is a Colonel in the Army and teaches at West Point in the Department of Social Sciences. Uh, to his right... To his right is the absent Secretary of Defense. I'm going to introduce him now as he will be arriving. Uh, he is Michael O'Hanlon, uh, class of 1988 and 1991, MPA, PhD. He is a senior fellow uh, and Sidney Stein, junior chair at the Brookings Institution. <laughs> Next, we have our national security advisor, uh, Stephen Simon, graduate class of MPA 1983, who is a senior analyst uh, in the RAND uh, Corporation and the co-author of The Age of Sacred Terror, which if you haven't read, you should. <laughs> Next, we have the Secretary of State. We've had to import her from Harvard, but since we had the real Secretary of State, we thought we could depart uh, from our Princeton rules. Uh, I'm delighted uh, to introduce Suzanne Nossel, uh, who is a senior fellow at the uh, Security and Peace Institute. Uh, in earlier incarnations, uh, she was a top assistant to Ambassador Holbrook uh, at the United Nations, working on repayment of the UN dues. And in a previous incarnation, I taught her at Harvard Law School. I'm very proud to say that. Uh, <laughs> next, we have the Secretary of the Treasury, uh, Michael Froman, who is uh, class of 1985, managing director at Citigroup Alternative Investments, and knows a great deal about being uh, Secretary of the Treasury. He was the chief of staff to Robert Rubin. And finally, another crimson import, uh, but we're very delighted to have him, Richard Falkenrath, uh, in the role of Director of National Intelligence. He is a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution and a noted expert on nonproliferation, also served uh, in the Bush administration. 
After the meeting, we will have commentary by our own Joe Nye, uh, class of 1958, uh, former dean of the Kennedy School. I always introduce him as friend, mentor, alum, and now former rival dean. We're delighted to have him back as well. <laughs> So let me turn it to Steve Simon to chair the meeting. Thank you. Well, uh, we're here uh, on a pretty uh, somber occasion, just when things were going so well. Uh, uh, I'd like to start off with uh, very rapid snapshot uh, briefings. Uh, from you all before we go into discussion. I'd like to wrap up this meeting at 6.15. Uh, the President is going to arrive at 6.30 or 6.45 uh, in that time range, and I'd like to be able to brief him at that point. The mic is switched on. Can everyone hear me? <laughs> Thank you. Uh, thank God for the sit-room staff. <laughs> um, uh, I'd like to wrap up our discussion at 6.15 so that we can proceed uh, one by one to uh, 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 develop a highlight for the President's briefing uh, at 6.45. I'd like to turn uh, first uh, for uh, an intel assessment to Richard Falkenrath. Now, uh, I'd like to cover a couple of points in addition to whatever you're going to do. We need to know what's going on in Pakistan, and we need to know what's going on politically, but we also need to know whatever you can tell us about what is going on among the terrorists or the, uh, the militant organizations that have seized these bases and carried out the attack against Musharraf. What do we know about their motivations? What do they want? Is this a coup? Is this an extortion attempt? Is this part of a larger series of attacks? Are we going to expect something here? And of course, we need to know whether they can make a bomb out of the components that they've got. Finally, I'd like to know whatever you can tell us about two more things. First, how loyal are the divisions in Ralpindi? And second, are the Indians under control? Then I'd like to turn to state. I'd like to know what we're getting from the Indians diplomatically, and I'd like to know what kind of allied support is shaping up, particularly for military action, should we have to go that route. Uh, in the absence of the Secretary, I'd like the Chairman uh, to address uh, a number of points, uh, if you can. Uh, first is, what assets do we have in theater? Do we have any con plans, any contingency plans, for seizing these bases either with or without the Pakistanis? Can we operate in an impermissive environment? And I need to know what staging or access you need to carry out an assault. So I can ask Suzanne to get it for you. Lastly, uh, uh, Secretary of Treasury, I'd like to know how we're going to keep the market stable when word of this leaks. And lastly, 
we need to cover how we get this story out, how the story breaks, because we need to control the way in which the story comes out as much as possible, and we need to coordinate that not only among ourselves, but with capitals. Uh, thanks, Steve. First thing I want to do is just deflate all of your expectations. I'm not going to have definitive answers to all the questions you posed, and we are not going to be able to control uh, this. <laughs> it's there it is. There it is. We, we, it's on. So the amp just needs to be turned. Uh, we are not going to be able to control this message as it breaks out. Uh, in our judgment, uh, this situation in Pakistan has the potential to develop into the most dangerous crisis this country has faced since the Cuba Missile Crisis and could do so very fast. Uh, so I suggest all. I, I suggest this, this crisis has the potential to develop into the most dangerous crisis this country has faced since the Cuban Missile Crisis. But we need to bear a couple of caveats in mind. This is a very fast-moving situation, and first reports are often wrong. We also uh, have to just admit that our unilateral sources of information inside the Pakistani government and inside Pakistani society are very bad. We are heavily reliant on imagery, on signals interception, and on liaison reporting, including from the Pakistani service, which in this case is probably part of the problem. Uh, and finally, we need to be very careful about extending our assumptions about what's going on in this potentially nightmarish situation against the real facts. So I'm going to divide this up, uh, divide my brief up between what we know, what we do not know, and what we, the intelligence community, assess. And it's important, I think, to bear in mind that there are lots of things here that we do not know. And several of the questions you asked, we simply do not know the answer. So what do we know first? We know Musharraf has been shot. We know that Aziz is nominally in charge and that he has declared a state of emergency. We know that Aziz has no support in Pakistani society. He's a Western technocrat and has owes nothing and is owed nothing by the Pakistani military or the Pakistani intelligence service within the military. Uh, we know that the military is the only institution that holds Pakistan together, that this is essentially a failed state. It has been for a long time, but for the military holding it together. We know that the military and the ISI are penetrated and have divided loyalties. I will tell you frankly, our intelligence on exactly where the fault lines lie within the Pakistani militaries are, are, is very limited, and we do not have a good sense of that. We know there have been previous assassination attempts on Musharraf, and that they have been by Islamic militants, uh, uh, Al-Qaeda and its affiliates, uh, and that he has survived them, but we do not know this attack was by those same groups, not yet. We know that Pakistan has a very large arsenal of nuclear weapons. Uh, it has sufficient, we do not know exactly how many weapons, and we do not know exactly where they are, but we know that it has sufficient, it's been producing highly enriched uranium since 1985, producing roughly enough highly enriched uranium for 10 weapons per year since 1995. So do the math, 200 uh, cores of highly enriched uranium worth been producing plutonium for weapons since the late 1990s. We estimate there's sufficient plutonium for probably 20 to 25 nuclear weapons in Pakistan. We also believe that they are continuing to produce today at the production facilities uh, in the north where they enrich the uranium and reprocess the plutonium. In addition, there's a very large amount of te technology and technological know-how, uh, and that the single most important barrier to the acquisition and utilization of a nuclear weapon by any terrorist group is access to the material, which is present in Pakistan in great abundance. 
That's, a, that's what we know. What do we not know? We do not know who shot Musharraf. We do not know if he's going to survive and if, when and if ever he will come back. We do not know the loyalties of those who are advising Aziz around him. Uh, we do not know uh, what is going on in this nuclear base. We know that ISI has told Musharraf that this, there has been a base seized, but we do not know exactly what's going on there. We have overhead imagery that shows some disturbance there, but we do not have unilateral intelligence telling us exactly uh, what's going on there. We do not know with certainty whether any of the assets at that particular storage facility uh, have been seized. We do not know where uh, Pakistan's nuclear weapons are, and we do not know uh, what state they are in or if they are assembled or not. Uh, we know that there are about a dozen different locations. We have a map of them where they probably are, but we do not have real-time intelligence about how many are in so, which location. ISI has just told Shaukat Aziz that a base has been seized without specifying which. Yes. No, no. We know which base the activity is taking, is taking place, but we do not know. We only know that ISI has reported this to Aziz. That is the fact that we know, and we know that something is going on at this particular base north of, north of Islamabad, but we do not know precisely that those, that Islamic militants are involved or that any weapons or materials have been, that is an assessment, that is not knowledge. Do we know that there were materials or weapons at the base that might have been seized according to the ISI report? We assess that, but we do not know it. We do not know if the ISI or the military are complicit in that activity. Uh, we do not know uh, exactly what activity, what options the Indian government is contemplating at this time. We do not know how the Pakistani street, the public uh, in Pakistan, which is divided, will respond uh, to this crisis as it develops. Now, that's what we know and what we do not know. We can do a little bit better by providing some assessments, but remember, these are assessments and they can be proven wrong uh, very quickly. We assess that the two events are most likely related that the assassination and the, and the, and the uh, developments at this base are related. The coincidence is simply uh, too strong. We assess that there's two basic scenarios here. The one is the one that you suggested in your mind, which is that it, it, this is somehow an, a radical extremist Islamic conspiracy to uh, uh, seize the weapons and use them for terrorist purposes. But there is another scenario we must bear in mind, that this is in fact a military coup against Musharraf, and what's happening at the base is a provocation for some other general, we don't know which one, to push, to push Aziz aside and take over. It is possible, based on what we know today, that the that that Pakistani military has not yet lost control of any nuclear weapons or technology at that base, and they're simply trying to create that impression so that their next general can move up uh, in the line. We don't know that. Uh, so this is our, these are our two scenarios. I don't know which one is right at this moment. Okay. Suzanne. We haven't had an opportunity yet uh, to reach out to our counterparts overseas. Uh, we just heard this news. Uh, we're in the process of doing that right now. So what I'm going to tell you is based on uh, you know, the situation as of yesterday, but I can give you an outlook on uh, what we expect the reaction to be around the world. And I think we've got to look at this uh, in two, essentially the two scenarios that Richard has outlined. One is, in, in my mind, that Aziz or someone else maintains control of Pakistan and that uh, there, is, there is centralized control of the country uh, and control of the military. And the other is uh, a, a, a two-pronged uh, scenario. One is that an al-Qaeda-linked group uh, assumes control of the country, and the second is that the country descends into chaos. So I think we need to consider each of our allies' uh, 
responses in uh, those alternative scenarios. We are in the process of starting a round of consultations. Uh, we're going to the Brits first. Uh, we expect solid support. You know, this is the kind of scenario that we and they have been focused on laser-like uh, you know, for the last eight years. Uh, you know, it's come to fruition. Unfortunately, it's under our watch. Uh, we warned our predecessors we thought it would take place under their watch. Uh, but uh, uh, but we're, of course. we're faced with it. <laughs> Next is India, and on the Indian side, our approach is to separate this from the Pakistani-Indian conflict, from Kashmir. Uh, it's in their interest to see stability in the region. I think they will stand down as long as we and our other allies mount a forceful response, and they do not feel uh, that the situation is being neglected, that there's a potential for descent into chaos. So making that assurance credibly to them uh, in the first instance is going to be critical. Next, we'll move to Japan. Uh, we can expect support there. Uh, I'm not worried. Then to China. Uh, there's going to be a lot of sensitivity about whether there's a U.S.-led reaction uh, in the region. Uh, they're not going to want to see that. So uh, mounting, if we do mount a any form of military intervention, putting an international face on that is going to be critical, and getting their support is going to be essential. The Iranians, uh, a critical dimension here, uh, will approach it uh, through the channels that we have directly and will also be engaging the Europeans uh, quickly to uh, approach the Iranians. This is uh, an Iranian nightmare scenario. Uh, I believe that they too will stand down if they are convinced that we and our allies are mounting a sufficiently forceful response, but again, that's going to have to happen quickly. Uh, we'll have to move confidently uh, in relation to them. Second-tier outreach, France, Germany, Russia, Australia, Indonesia, Malaysia. We'll cover those bases. I'm not terribly worried about any of them, but I think we'll have to first agree what we're going to do here and then send a clear message out. In the short term, our kind of key bullets uh, in each of these consultations are going to be support for Aziz, I think, and or whatever successor. Uh, I think we really have to question that. I mean, is, it may be that the only hope for Pakistan right now is another military strongman. Hmm. But isn't there a, a scenario of a peaceful segue from Aziz to another general? We assess that Aziz, as days are numbered. Uh, and uh, that he uh, has no support in the Pakistani military, uh, and that uh, any kind of democratic secession, any kind of legitimate political process here, increases the destabilization of that country. Well, can we ease him out? That's my question. We, we might want to ask. Well, that that's, uh, appears to be in progress, or might be in progress. Uh, we don't we don't really know, but let's not worry for the moment about what's going to happen uh, to Shaukat Aziz. We have more urgent fish to fry right now in terms of finding out what exactly is going on and preparing for our contingencies. That's true, although our contingencies do hinge on whether you have uh, any kind of leader in place. Yeah, I mean, the number one contingency, there's two layers of them, as Suzanne said. The first is you lose these weapons at the base alone. The second is the whole country collapses, which is a real possibility. Here And the only institution holding it together is the military. And so I think we have to think hard about who commands the military here, and is Aziz part of the problem or part of the solution? But it doesn't sound to me from what you're saying as though 
we have any realistic chance of shoring up Shaukat Aziz if there is a coup underway. Uh, uh, on the second scenario that you put forward, namely uh, where uh, a renegade uh, division commander or corps commander or some set of divisional commanders decides that it's time for Musharraf and his and his lapdog Aziz to go. Yeah, we have very little. We have very little direct influence over that. Uh, the Secretary of State may disagree, but that's the intelligence community's impression. I don't know that there's much we can do. I think if there's anything that we can do to facilitate a peaceful segue, if there's somebody that we can identify, if there's somebody that comes forward in the next 24 hours that is, emer that is moving into place, I think to get Aziz uh, to gracefully step aside, this is not anything he ever asked for, uh, as I think Michael knows. Uh, Michael's known this man for we'll, years. We'll, we'll come back to this, because it's not clear that, that he'll insist on staying that's, that's, uh, you know, if, he's, if he's invited out. Um, you done? One thing I think we, as got, is essential in our initial outreach is that there, we establish consensus among our allies that there is zero tolerance for a, for a uh, an Al-Qaeda-backed coup uh, or for the descent of, of the country into chaos or into a, a, an Al-Qaeda-backed government. And that will, there'll be absolute solidarity on that score, ready willingness to impose sanctions and a quarantine, and uh, that we've got unity on that. And I think the, the last piece is making sure that whatever intelligence and information is out there, particularly on the Indian side, uh, that we pool that uh, as quickly as possible. And you'll be counseling restraint in New Delhi. In New Delhi and uh, indirectly in Tehran. In Tehran. Thank you. Before you arrived, uh, is the president okay? He's fine. <laughs> and the Rumsfeld 2008 fundraiser I was just at, if I'm playing Rumsfeld, it's going very well. Seriously. Uh, the questions I put to the chairman uh, in your absence are, first, what assets do we have in theater, assuming that some uh, military response is required either in scenario one uh, to attempt to seize either with or without the Pakistanis uh, the base in question, or if in this alternative scenario Pakistan begins to dissolve, what forces do we have on hand that can be used for stability purposes? Uh, in terms of uh, deploying strike forces, uh, we'll need to know what access you think you will need so Suzanne can, can get it for us. We'll also, know, we'll, we'll also need to know if our SF, our Special Forces assets that have a render safe and dismantlement capability for those weapons uh, are on hand and can be deployed and if they're up to that big a task, because it doesn't sound like we're talking about one or two weapons or improvised devices, but we're talking about a part of possibly a very large arsenal. General Gordon, of course, can give you more of the details, but let me talk about the politics as they affect the military and make this transition. That We have, I think, three main types of options, uh, and you've really gotten at all of them. Uh, one of them is to use special forces that are nearby uh, and get them to Pakistan as quickly as possible. I don't think they can go in enough numbers to be the dominant force even locally at the base we're talking about. So I think this option presumes Pakistani military permission, or at least from some faction thereof, 
The director of intelligence may want to say more about that, but I think we have to think about getting to one group in the military and working with them and asking them if we can help. And frankly, this is a mission that I would expect they would want never to acknowledge happened, and we wouldn't either, and that would be fine. Because our overriding uh, concern here, obviously, is making sure nuclear weapons do not escape. With all due respect, Pakistani politics can come later. That's a secondary issue uh, as, as we look at it from the Defense Department's point of view. Making sure those nuclear weapons don't get into the wrong hands is overwhelmingly the number one issue. Second option, and in that spirit, and sounding like a Sunday night movie, we could actually take it upon ourselves to bomb this site before anything gets worse and kill everyone around, including uh, destroying the materials. This is obviously an extreme option, but if we ever got enough real-time intelligence to think that the place was not yet dissolved but dissolving, and we had a period of time during which we could make this happen, uh, we might very well want to consider it. Now, that re would require having firepower in place that we don't, and my general uh, will be able to tell you in a minute how long it would take to get there, but you're talking there probably 10, 12, 15 hours. The special forces may be able to arrive to the extent they're in Afghanistan, and he'll say more in just a second, in the space of one or two, uh, but again, that's going to depend on having helicopters nearby and having the Pakistanis willing to have these helicopters fly over their territory and come to their aid. The third mission that you got at last, sir, is the stabilization mission, uh, the, the main thing to say about this one is it takes a long time. We can't begin to do it on this time scale of hours or, for that matter, even days and, frankly, even weeks is pushing what's militarily practical. This is the sort of thing that if you're going to have to even control a sector of Pakistan and try to quarantine that area or, I should say, seal the borders, even doing that is going to require so much force that it will take us probably a month or more to get there. And we, if there's any good news in this presentation, it's that we probably don't need to worry a whole lot about permission. Uh, except from Pakistan itself, because as you know, obviously, if we're going to go into Pakistan's territory, I think we're going to uh, probably need one of their ports, which we may or may not have to seize, but presumably not. Even that mission would require, I think, Pakistani acquiescence, at least from part of their military. Uh, and the, the, the mission that would involve bombers or cruise missiles uh, would be from international airspace or the sea. So I think if there's one bit of good news I can leave you with. It's that I don't expect a lot of talk about access to be necessary, except with the Pakistanis themselves. As I say, General Gordon can offer more on all these points. Yes, I agree with the uh, Defense Secretary's assessment. Uh, there are some issues here. One of the key issues in terms of how we think about this militarily is the degree of organization of this militant group. If they are disorganized, we may actually have some time, uh, because that would probably circumscribe some of their intentions. If they are organized, we have a significant problem we have to address. Now, let me preface my remarks by saying I'm assuming we're using our diplomatic efforts to keep the Indians at bay when I review some of the options available. But let's say they are organized and we have to do something, and do something fairly quickly. I want us to think about land, air, or sea. First of all, we do have 16,000 troops, as we know, in Afghanistan. Uh, of that, there is a brigade, about 3,000 plus of uh, combat light forces uh, from Vincenza, complemented by a battalion from the 82nd that was there to, over, uh, to observe the elections. But I'd have to check if they're, they're still there and available. That gives us some force, but of course, I agree with the assessment that we would need to bring our Pakistani military friends in on this for coordination. In addition to that, we do have ISAF forces there. We have Germans and Brits. I might say that uh, our forces occupy the southern sector of Afghanistan. In the northern sector, we have the Germans, we have the Brits, we have the Aussies. There's some issues about getting them involved, of course, because of their rules of engagement first. And uh, their countries have instituted a lot of caveats in terms of using them. 
The bottom line is we do have assets. They can be available. There are some coordination issues that we would incur with the Pakistanis. Let's say we want, want to act more unilaterally. What we could do, of course, is use stealth. And in that vein, we have B-2s available from Whiteman Air Force Base near Kansas City. We could scramble a B-2. I think we'd probably need one with one as a backup. We'd need some fueler support, KC-135s. And then I would advise that we probably don't want escort support at this point, because that way we can be as stealthy as possible. And as the Defense Secretary said, if we need to take this thing out quickly, we can do so. The Nimitz right now, in fact, is ported in Dubai. And uh, we could move it forward anyway in terms of signaling some intent on the part of the United States to do something, and that might keep the Indians at bay. But at the same time, there are some significant capabilities there uh, in terms of doing this thing from the sea if we had to use uh, cruise missiles or whatnot. The beauty of that is that we could call it off at the last moment if we were to do something. And that way, if our diplomatic efforts were to work, we would have a trigger mechanism by which we could move back from the military option instead. Finally, we have fighter support available. The problem with that is the coordination that would need, that we would incur in terms of using fighters. And if we did so, I would recommend we not do it from a place like Afghanistan, just because of everything implied from using those forces from that platform. We could launch those fighters from the Gulf, but once again, if we were to do so, significant coordination problems that I would rely on you for. It gives us some options that are available. The bottom line is this, though. If we could use our intelligence agencies to determine both who it is who has seized this and what their intents might be, it might help us determine whether a military option is viable or not. Yeah, it ain't going to happen. I mean, I guess when you when you have hammer a hammer, the world looks like nails because these options are not where we need to be thinking right now, and we should not be talking to the president at this stage about military options. Uh, I mean, just on stabilization issue, this is the sixth most populous country in the world. All right, it, it, I mean, this is it is a, a problem, a stabilization problem, orders of magnitude beyond Iraq and Afghanistan. So let's just forget about that. We, we're fooling ourselves if we think we have any capacity to stabilize any substantial portion of Pakistan. Second. Let alone other countries. I want to just cover the Treasury uh, aspect of this before we get into the discussion mm -hmm. of options. Sure. The economic agencies are always left out of these discussions. <laughs> Not on my watch. Thank you, Steve. Well, look, I spent 26 years on Wall Street, and I'm, I don't know much about Pakistan, but I did you talk. You fit right in. I, I did talk to. Uh, <laughs> I did call my friend Larry Summers, who tells me he knows everything about everything, and so uh, I've been I've been brought up to speed uh, pretty quickly. Uh, Pakistan, as you may remember, during the 1990s, went from one economic crisis to another, but for the last six years, they've been on a very good track of macroeconomic reform, debt stabilization, structural reform. Add to that the very uh, significant inflows of official assistance after 9-11, both in terms of debt relief and in terms of direct aid from us and our allies. And in fact, their economy is doing quite well. Uh, their growth has gone from 3% to 7%. Their debt to GDP ratio has declined significantly. It wasn't so long ago that they only had two weeks worth of foreign reserves left in their central bank before they went bankrupt. Now they have six months worth of foreign reserves, which is a very healthy level. So if you're gonna have a crisis in Pakistan, this is about as good a time 
that you can have one in the last 20 years. And I know Shaka Aziz, he spent 30 years at Citibank, therefore he is inherently competent and I'm sure can manage it. <laughs> and uh, I, I, I couldn't understand why his popular appeal wouldn't be greater given that background. <laughs> Uh, but as, as, as Susan, Suzanne said, she, uh, he may well be looking for an opportunity to, to get out of Pakistan soon. Having said all that, if, if, Shockett, if Shockett were to be assassinated and to be replaced uh, or be replaced by some sort of populist general uh, who didn't share the economic program priorities that he's put in place, uh, the situation could turn around uh, quite quickly. If there were a prolonged crisis involving India and the whole subcontinent were involved, that could have broader economic implications. And there's one great unknown, which as you all know uh, from your reading, uh, there's been a massive inflow of money into unregulated, uh, non-transparent hedge funds over the last few years. Many of these hedge funds are invested in emerging markets. And as irrational as it sounds, when something happens in one emerging market like Pakistan, money managers tend to pull money out of all emerging markets and reduce their positions. So this could have implications from Russia to Brazil to, to Southeast Asia as well. Uh, unfortunately, we don't have a lot of information about what those positions are and how much leverage is involved, but you can see the sort of crisis that you saw with LTCM in the context of the Russian crisis in October 1999. Uh, so Pakistan itself in relatively decent shape, but the potential could be a low probability event, but the potential destabilization on the global economy could be significant. Okay. We've got a couple of scenarios, uh, one perhaps more benign uh, than the other, uh, that we need to be thinking about. But we don't know what's actually going on. We don't know if this is a coup d'etat with some kind of uh, uh, self-justifying maneuvering uh, going on, uh, or this is uh, some sort of audacious move by uh, local and uh, transnational terrorists uh, to uh, seize uh, weaponry and either use it or transfer technology or materials to others. Vastly different scenarios with vastly different implications for us. But we need to be thinking about how best to position ourselves to deal with those two and the lesser included cases that might occur in the, uh, in the interval between those, those two broad uh, scenarios. And we need to think about ways in which to prepare ourselves that don't box the president in. This is not something we want to do at this point. Steve, can I just amend the two scenarios? Absolutely. You have got the, the two scenarios are correct, but think of them as the first domino in a chain of dominoes that leads to the same place, which is the upheaval and collapse of the Pakistani state. And either one could lead us there. Right, so we're worried about the domino in and of itself. But either the coup you talked about, possibly aggravated by external intervention, or the Islamic scenario could lead through this domino effect to the collapse of the Pakistani state and the loss not just of the, of the nuclear materials at that site, but in the entire country. So we have to keep that as a longer-term risk as well. Rich, why do you say if we can get another, let's face it, another strong man in, why aren't we basically back to where we were with Musharraf? Is it, is it your sense that he had a unique uh, popularity and hold on power uh, and that a successor, no matter who it is, is going to be more vulnerable to an al-Qaeda-backed uh, second coup? He had the one thing that seems to matter in this country, which is the loyalty of the armed, armed services. 
uh, and my opinion, uh, and this is just my opinion, is the next best thing we could find is whoever that person is right now with the loyalty to the armed service, because there's no other institution that holds that state together. Let me agree with Rich as well, the point he made earlier, that we cannot begin to think about stabilizing this entire country. The only way we could ever play any role uh, in stabilizing would be, again, in cooperation with the Pakistani military. And it's not because we want to be good multilateralists. It's because of the physical size of the country and because of the amount of time that would be required to get substantial forces there. So in military terms, the only meaningful options we have in, in terms of large forces are to work with the Pakistanis. In terms of immediate special forces, again, we must work with the Pakistanis. Otherwise, these forces will be shot down on their way in. Uh, and the, the only option we have that's strictly unilateral is, again, to essentially destroy the site uh, and the rationale for that would be only in a worst case that we can't yet posit we have, but the, uh, the rationale could be the Pakistanis overestimate their ability to control this site uh, out of just military overconfidence, or some of the local forces are actually on an, on an inside job, uh, and we don't know yet exactly who's involved, and we may have to basically make sure we destroy these materials so we have no idea who's going to be locally the dominant power. That's the only scenario. And again, I don't advocate it now. We may want to start moving assets in place to have the option later. That's the only scenario that would involve any unilateral force by the United States. Do we have, I'm sorry, just a quick question. Do we have any meaningful military to military ties with the Pakistanis? For a lot we could Absolutely. We always have. One issue, though, I think we need to bring up as well is if things go to heck in a handbasket, it's going to greatly affect Afghanistan. We could see refugees from Pakistan pouring into the Afghani border, and they're looking at our concept. If we have significant con plans to deal with that sort of situation, especially for all that we're trying to do in Afghanistan, is a clear issue. So, um, not just Pakistan, Kashmir, it's true. Western China, mm -hmm. the Gulf states, possibly the entire Islamic world. And this is this effect. I think you're exactly right about Afghanistan. It can do the exact same thing in Kashmir. Musharraf has been keeping the militants in Kashmir under his thumb for the last two years at our, at our considerable urging, and he's had modest success. Now that he's on his, possibly on his deathbed, they might decide now's the time to have him undergo at the Indians. The Indians will be watching out for that. Richard, what is the closest thing to a emerging Pakistani general who's got solid military support that we can identify right now because it seems like that's got to be our focus. We've got to find that person and we've got to maneuver that person into power quickly. We're not sure. <laughs> what do you mean? This may be off point, but all the money we poured into the intelligence community, we don't seem to know anything. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, clearly. <laughs> Can you imagine how bad it would be? I want to take a look at their budget. That money <laughs> <laughs> got, uh, you know, Suzanne uh, raises a very good question, mm. and it's where I was going with my query about mill mill ties with the mm -hmm. Pakistanis. Do we have friends on the general staff? Do we have friends among corps commanders? Do we have any relationships? that we can use to get some of the information that <clears throat> Do we? Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, clearly, I mean, we have some significant mill-to-mill -mill relationships. There are certain Pakistani generals, of course, who have been educated in such a way that uh, those relationships uh, have blossomed and cemented over the years. At the same time, it is oftentimes very difficult when a military leader uh, 
And of course, as we know, this is the fourth time that a military leader has, has ruled Pakistan, uh, is assassinated or an assassination attempt occurred. It is very hard to determine where allegiances will lie. So we can rely on those relationships with that sort of caveat. Uh, and as a result of that, I do think we need to employ global IRSR assets, all the intelligence assets that we can muster to uh, get as best we can uh, significant intelligence we can use to determine, uh, as I said again, the organization of, uh, of this group and what their intentions are. Um, one of the other issues, of course, uh, that's very important in, in, in this entire thing is uh, the degree, once again, to which the Indians can be kept at bay. And we haven't really discussed that very much. And one question is, do we think we can do that? Uh, with our diplomatic relationships uh, as well, because the Indians are going to be nervous. I would suspect, especially the Iranians might be nervous if, if this is uh, if this is a not well organized militant group, because we wouldn't know necessarily what their intentions might be. I think the better organized they are, we can reach out and understand the branches and sequels, and then figure out what to do. Yeah, I'm not t taking issue uh, with any of that. I think uh, 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 you're quite. Right. The, the question is, do we have relationships that we can exploit right now, A, to find out better what's going yes. on, and uh, yes. B, to get an idea of uh, what horse to back if, in fact, there's a, a horse to back horse among to back. the military? Yes, we have some relationships with the caveat that I mentioned. Okay. We'll want to turn to that. And I think the other question is, can we, through the India, if we don't know who this guy is, uh, who, who we can anoint to take over, uh, if anybody does, the Indians would. And yeah, we're, I mean, we're working full time to try to figure out who this is and where, you know, the most, but, we, you know, we need to be clear. Our friends, so in the past, are not necessarily going to be our friends going forward. And this is Pakistan. And a friend of America is a, is a leader who tells American officials what he wants to hear or what she wants to hear when they're meeting rather than tells them what they don't want to hear. And these are, this is a very, very slippery country with very complex loyalties along many lines, and all of them are going to be thinking about the possible disintegration scenarios that we're thinking about, because they know about the ethnic tensions between the Punjab and the Singh and the Baluchs and the Mohajir and the rest of them. I mean, and, it is a, and the Pashtuns. It is an extremely uh, difficult situation that they have to manage internally as well. Uh, yeah, there, there are uh, real centripetal forces in Pakistan that we need to be worrying about, and yet historically there doesn't seem to be a whole lot of precedent uh, for the disintegration scenario that we need to be concerned about. Um, but uh, may not be... May, may 71. Not be, I mean, Pakistan started out as, uh, you know, it was, when the East Pakistan separated, it was, it was a version of the those, same disintegration phenomenon. Those, those circumstances uh, were uh, idiosyncratic. You had two parts of a country that were separated by a vast distance. We're talking about a different Pakistan now, and since 71, despite these ethnic tensions, which I think you're quite right about, we haven't seen uh, signs of, of real disintegration. I'm not saying we shouldn't be worrying about that. I have to say I side with Richard on this. I think there's a real danger that okay. you've got a fragmented military. I don't, I, don't, I don't know if Michael would disagree with that, but I think you've got a fragmented military, you've got a fragmented polity, you've got Islamist influence on the rise, and I don't think those uh, centralized forces are, I think Musharraf held it together, you know, on knife's edge. Mm -hmm. And we have seen considerable violence in Karachi in the south between the, the Sindh majority and the Mohir, the immigrants from 1947, and we have seen violence between the Punjabis and the Pashtun in the north. 
uh, and we've seen the Baluchi region and the tribal regions is basically ungoverned on their own. So the question. Well, the Sorry. question is, what can we do to Absolutely. improve the odds that it will hold together? And I would, I would put forth that in addition to developing military options and looking for diplomatic support, we should present whatever factions we can come in contact with within the Pakistani military a stark choice. They have to hold themselves together or we will not keep the Indians out. And that if they do hold themselves together, we will do everything in our power, including surging this carrier and using our diplomatic efforts and perhaps even over-talking our capability, that they may believe us, uh, to keep the Indians out. And um, in other words, if the Indians come in, the first thing the Indians are going to do is destroy all 12 of those facilities with nuclear weapon material. And the Pakistani military, no part of it wants that. And so we have to position ourselves to be this neutral broker that can keep the Indians out and essentially help them protect their own nuclear arsenal. Uh, and use that as leverage to force any factions that develop to, to unify. And to what extent this works, I don't know, but that's the kind of a strategy I think we need to work towards because that's the kind of lever we may actually have, or at least that we can claim we have. One aircraft carrier may not match up very well against the Indian military the way it could have 35 years ago, uh, but it still is something, and the Pakistanis may, may believe us even if we're partly bluffing. Do we have any context that we rely on at all on the intelligence side in Pakistan? Yeah. Or is that I mean, we do. really I think not? He no, that. We have, no, we have, we have extensive relations with the Pakistani intelligence. Uh, uh, and in part, that's why our unilateral collection is so bad uh, in Pakistan. We rely on them, as we did through the 80s, uh, to, to funnel assistance to the Mujahideen. We rely on them to assist us in our effort to root out al-Qaeda in the cities and in the countryside. Uh, and so we work very closely. But part of the deal, the Faustian bargain that our agencies have struck in order to get that access is to dramatically curtail the unilateral collection and penetration. Now, that's not to say we have zero, but we have a tiny fraction of what we had in the 70s and 60s beforehand. So we do have these relationships, and we will reach out through those channels to try to identify what's really going on. And it may be that we will find allies there. But the ISI's loyalties are highly suspect here. Uh, and so we can't count on it. We won't know today. We will try to get the answer for the next meeting. But we need to understand we don't have great unilateral access there. And our prior context, though extensive, might not be that useful in this case. I think we've got to think about this on two tracks. On the one track, uh, we're making a full force effort to identify somebody that could take over this country and keep a hold on the military. And we do that, I think, uh, with Michael's approach uh, by raising the specter of Indian intervention. And I think to Richard's point that it, the test is not whether they're a U.S. ally uh, or a friend of ours. A friend of ours is not going to survive uh, at the home in Pakistan. Uh, the test for right now is somebody who could hold on to the reins. Uh, and, and whatever difficulties we face in dealing with that individual in the future, I think we have to put to one side for now. Uh, and recognize that we have a short, immediate interest in stability. I think at the same time, we've got to face up to the scenario of descent into chaos and an al-Qaeda-backed uh, coup. And we need to be planning for, uh, I think it goes beyond taking out one facility. Uh, from the evidence that I've seen, information about the, full, the totality of Pakistan's nuclear installations uh, may have leaked out. Uh, so I think we need to plan for that scenario. It cannot be a unilateral scenario. In my judgment, it's going to require ground troops. Uh, we're going to need international unity to contend with that. It sounds to me uh, that as a first step, we need to have a full court press on the Pakistani military leadership. Mm -hmm. Um, we need to identify the likely targets for an approach. 
we need to coordinate some variation of the approach that you described, but we need to think it through pretty carefully and refine it because we don't want to go overboard uh, by asserting an influence over the Indians that, uh, that we don't have. Hinting in that direction might not be a bad idea. Lord knows we're always going to the Syrians and saying we won't stand in front of the way of the Israelis if they don't do one thing or another. Uh, that happens not to work, but um, it, it might work with the Pakistanis. So it's got to be a full court approach. Uh, Suzanne, uh, you've got to go uh, to allies and get them to join this in their own channels because I think that the Pakistani military leadership needs to hear this not just from us. Steve, can I ask a question? Sure. Why should we be the one to approach mm. the Pakistani military? Is there not some country? The whole world has the same interests as we do in this case. Are we the best one to be making an approach to the, to the likely strongman in the military? Is there another Islamic country that doesn't have the same stigma and, and reputational problems that we do that we can seek to do this as our agent or the agent of the international community? Well, we, we certainly don't want to do it alone. I think they need to hear this from us, among others, because we're the predominant military power in the region, setting aside the Indians for the moment. We've got a lot of troops in the region. We've got a demonstrated interest in what's going on there. We've got a track record of acting uh, on the basis of our interests. Maybe, you know, it doesn't work out all that well all the time, but anyway, we've got that track record, and uh, we ought to uh, exploit that. But why, why, why not? That's, that's, I mean, that's there's only one, one other Number credible. two, if you're talking about the kinds of corps commanders that... Uh, you know, I knew when I was in Pakistan in the 80s, um, uh, they're not going to be so impressed by the fact that, you know, you're Muslim or you're, you're Christian. What's going to impress them is what they think you have that can back up what it is uh, you have to say. But, but we ought to get Muslim representation. Well, so. I think there's, more, there's another uh, credible interlocutor, and that's the Chinese. Mm -hmm. uh, but it will be Absolutely. very much their decision whether I think that's something we can raise. We cannot push them. Uh, to do that, and I, I, to be honest with you, cannot predict what their reaction will be. But I think it was just the Chinese looking at pure interest, and looking just looking at pure self-interest, I think the Chinese will, will should look at this the way that we do and see the same interest in holding Pakistan together. I want to raise something. I know we only have five minutes until uh, you must go and brief the president, but I, I want to uh, raise the homeland situation. Uh, Secretary Cheridoff is, is, I gather, uh, not in town until tomorrow uh, on account of <laughs> He's in Louisiana shopping. <laughs> They're overloaded, but I, I, I want to understand from Richard uh, and, and maybe from Michael uh, just what kind of immediate threat uh, we may be facing uh, here at home, and I think we need to talk about what we're going to do about that, what we're going to communicate to the American public about that. Well, uh, we started out by asking uh, the DNI whether he thought that this might be part of a larger conspiracy that would include attacks against the United States. It didn't sound to me as though you had any intel to suggest that, but uh, probabilities? That's right. We don't have any evidence of any immediate threat to the U.S. as well, but we have certainty that if we lose control of even one weapon's worth of highly enriched uranium or plutonium from Pakistan, uh, that, that, that the target, the most attractive and highest interest target for al-Qaeda and its affiliates is the U.S. homeland, and this is where they will try to get it. Uh, and so I, we see over some time period of months or years a step function increase in the risk of a nuclear detonation in a U.S. city 
if we if this uh, gets out of hand in Pakistan. A priority, it seems to me, therefore, is to allocate as much of our intelligence resources as we can to the issue of whether anything is getting out of Pakistan. Uh, yeah, but we don't have much. I mean, and to the truth is, we really uh, do not have uh, any reliable collection across any of the points of exit of Pakistan. We can't monitor the traffic over the border into Afghanistan, out of the ports in Karachi, out of the airports. We can try, and we can pulse, and we can work with liaison because, as I said, every other country has the same interest. But we've been chasing loose nukes and fissile material and the rest since 1990, uh, and this is a very hard target. We, we might get lucky, but don't have any illusions. The only one good defense against nuclear terrorism is to secure the stuff at its source. Once, it's, once the cat is out of the bag, we are in big trouble. How much time do we have? I mean. It may already about? be too late. Two minutes. It may have, no, no. I mean, it may already be too late. If it was the second scenario that this is an Islamic takeover of that facility, uh, they probably are already located the fissile material. It's probably on a truck moving in the tribal area right now, uh, and we are behind the curve already. Well, uh, Richard, think about what additional resources might be needed. Uh, I rec I'm bereft of illusions. But anything that we can do to maximize uh, our chances of detecting uh, something extremely uh, lethal coming out of Pakistan, we need to do. You come back uh, uh, to me. We'll get whatever additional resources we need from the president uh, for, for obvious reasons. We'll bring it in. In addition to the intelligence piece, there is the question of how a nuclear weapon could get into the United States quickly. And in the short term, it would be via airplane, clearly. So if the American people want to know, are they safe this weekend? Uh, the question is, can any kind of an airplane leaving Pakistan or the immediate environment uh, get out with a nuclear weapon? It's unlikely. The truck would probably have to go to the hinterlands of Pakistan to avoid its own intelligence forces. But we might want to explore helping Pakistan uh, monitor its own air cargo and passengers if they are willing to have that dialogue at the same time we talk military to military. And then finally, we want to start thinking about, at least maybe in your second meeting with the President, how fast we can beef up our container inspection system to go beyond the present level of 5 to 10 percent inspections to a much higher fraction, because we could be in a situation where within two or three weeks, weapons could be theoretically uh, taken to the United States by ship. Okay. Uh, before we go into the wrap-up phase of our discussion where we develop a roster of options and recommendations for the President in this very early stage of an unfolding crisis, uh, I think we should talk about how we handle the media. Don't all jump in. Uh, <laughs> this is going to be in the morning's papers. Uh, you know, the story is out there. Uh, you know, we are only going to have so much control over that. I do think, uh, you know, we've been talking about the threat of loose nukes and uh, nuclear weapons that get into terrorist hands uh, for years. The American public is, is not going to be lost uh, on the dangers that we face here. I think we need to come up, be forthright. I think the president is going to uh, need to give a speech this week, uh, probably in the next 48 hours, in prime time, and talk about what has happened, what we know, uh, how we're approaching it, uh, convey the solidarity that we will, by that point, uh, have locked together with our allies, and give an outlook. It's going to be very preliminary, but I don't think we gain anything by going into a, a bunker mentality. The, the one message that hurts us greatly is the impression that we are actively contemplating any intervention into Pakistan. So we should deny that. 
Okay. Even if it's true. Yes. Even if it's true. We should lie. Steve, with regard to the markets, we're consulting with our G7 uh, allies and the IMF, and I think, uh, depending on how soon this becomes public, issuing some sort of statement that assures the markets of the fundamentals of Pakistan and of the emerging markets more generally would be useful. Okay, you're going to have to work with Suzanne on that. Just give me a talking point. There's an argument in addition for the president to say something tonight for two minutes to the country, uh, perhaps avoiding any questions, anything that would even require him to deny, because uh, that'll happen soon enough. But simply saying, we know of, we have a very serious situation, the government's full attention is on this, we know of no immediate threat uh, to American or any other country's security. Uh, I think there's a strong argument for that, because it won't take too many people too long to figure out the Pakistani nuclear weapons could be moving out of that country's control. And then people are going to start doing their own calculations and their own timelines. It may have to precede a speech next week. Steve, we haven't really talked about this, but uh, I see Senator Sarbanes here. Is there any consultation going on with leaders on the Hill on this? Before we, before we go public. Don't you think it would be courtesy to consult with the leaders on the Hill of both parties? Before we... The President's Chief of Staff is taking care of that. Uh, okay. Let's, uh, let's turn to wrap up, but just a thought uh, on the uh, President's remarks. Whenever they're made in whatever form they take, the public remarks need to be thought through carefully for their impact on a Pakistani audience. So we need to be thinking of that when, when we do the drafting. Okay. Um, uh, we've got uh, 10 minutes, uh, or maybe a little less. I just want to wrap up very quickly with the do-outs. Who's got uh, what uh, that they need uh, to produce uh, for the next meeting? Let's start with you, Richard, in terms of whatever upgraded or stepped-up intelligence efforts uh, you're going to be making. Well, we will be working through all channels to try to get a precise uh, assessment of who the most powerful man in Pakistan is, really after Musharraf, who the next one in line is. At the same time, we will be watching the developments there, very carefully there to try to come back with a better assessment as to what exactly is going on at this nuclear facility, because as we know, this makes an enormous amount of attention. We will also do our best through overhead imagery and the like to watch uh, and try to detect activity at the sensitive Pakistani military sites and nuclear sites, uh, which we've seen in the past. If they start to fear uh, an engagement with India. They will likely adhere to their previous pattern, which is to uh, mate the weapons with their delivery vehicles, fighter aircraft, and disperse them around the country so that they are not vulnerable to the preemption that the Secretary of Defense mentioned. That will likely uh, be noticed by the Indian government, who will see it as a potentially offensive act. So we are going to simultaneously have to be watching through overhead what's going on in India uh, to, because of the dynamic that is almost certain to result. Uh, it is a classic uh, uh, a Cold War scenario where it's a use them or lose them situation, and both of them will be feeling it, and the spiral will start almost inevitably. Got it. That wouldn't be good for the markets. <laughs> <laughs> if you say so. Suzanne? We'll be making the rounds we've started already. Uh, we'll be uh, paying particular attention to 
India to Iran uh, and ensuring that they're prepared to stand down, at least in the very short term, until we have a better handle on the situation. We'll be trying to instill confidence across the board that we're working on uh, a multi-pronged approach, uh, that we're focused on finding a successor to Musharraf who can take control. We'll in a sensitive way, be feeling out the Chinese to see if they can play a constructive role in identifying that person and pushing the Pakistani military to get that person to the fore. Okay. Mike? I think that uh, in addition to developing the contact points with the Pakistani military and trying to bring others involved as well, we need to pre-deploy one of us to do face-to-face -face negotiations with any Pakistani leader that we want to help consolidate power. And uh, it can't be the president. Uh, it could be Suzanne, but it probably should be General Gordon, because I prefer to put him in danger than to put myself in danger. And, 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 and military to military ties, I think, are what it's going to be all about. And I think but perhaps, perhaps the two of us should go together, because it needs to be someone who is seen as in the chain of command of the United States. Uh, and I'm not saying leave. Uh, what, what, what I'm saying is, Put, send this person and the B-2 bombers to Diego Garcia for the moment and have them within a couple hours range and don't tell anybody about it. Uh, I think that we have to seriously consider this. The only danger is that my absence will be noted in Washington, which perhaps is what the director of... Do you think so? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, but, we have a remote but, location prepared for you. But I think I should go. And I think, I think, the, uh, I think that the uh, carrier should leave... Uh, uh, the general can discuss this in a second. The carrier should leave its port, but not with any uh, announced destination. Um, and B-2 should again leave Whiteman, but going to another American-controlled base on an exercise. And even the exercise should not be discussed. We, but time, we, time is going to be of the essence here absolutely. if things go bad. We I need agree. to discuss it with the President before the Secretary does anything like that, which could be taken as a provocation. I agree. I Good think no, no, no potential leader of Pakistan is going to meet with the U.S. at this stage. We're just putting options in front of the President at this point. Well, right. Good point. Yeah, let's make sure that these are then options and that you don't start doing it simultaneously. Good. I understand. <laughs> <laughs> that would never happen. Well, what, Knowing him? <laughs> <laughs> what I think is important now, though, is exercising the mill-to-mill -mill relationships, and not only with the Pakistani military, but also with the Indian military leaders as well. Um, I just remind everyone at the table that uh, the uh, areas of responsibility are different. The Indians come under U.S. Pacific Command, and the Pakistanis under, of course, U.S. Central Command as well. So we've got some coordination issues that we've got to affect. But I would agree and that... They'll shoot at each other. <laughs> but I would agree that uh, we would probably want to uh, move the Nimitz out from uh, the port of Dubai into the Arabian Sea. And uh, the Kitty Hawk is fairly far away at this point in time. We can start moving her down in that direction as well. Um, and then according to what the President would like us to do in terms of future military action, we can do so. Okay. Uh, one other thing, Suzanne. Uh, you'll have to give me a list of calls you want the president to make. I have that prepared. Okay. Great. Uh, and the White House will take care of speech drafting and will circulate a draft. And I want you all personally involved in the review and drafting process of the president's remarks as well as on the final decision as to how he deploys them. Thank you. It's been a good meeting.
in this scenario. So good grades. I should also say it's kind of ironic that I'm asked to comment on a scenario involving a nuclear storage site in Pakistan since a little earlier this year. I published a novel called The Power Game, which was about a CIA plot to destroy a nuclear uh, uh, storage place in Pakistan. And that actually grew out of a real situation when in 1979, the Secretary of State asked me to write him a private memo about when we knew that Pakistan was developing nuclear weapons of what it would take and was it a good idea to destroy these weapons before they were fully developed. That gives you some idea of how long this scenario has been around. And if you want to have fun, read the novel. But in any case, uh, Rich Falkenrath started out with a very interesting comment, the worst crisis since the Cuban Missile Crisis. What that reminds us, however, is that John Kennedy had two weeks to work with his XCOM before it went fully public. In the 24-hour news cycle, the one thing that was slightly unrealistic about this was the view that they could control the story or what the president was about to say was going to be uh, determining the story. Remember, in the scenario, uh, Musharraf was shot yesterday morning. My God, the markets, those hedge funds that uh, Michael talked around are already going crazy. And not only CNN, but Al Jazeera and everybody else has been on this story for 12 to 24 hours. So this story is already further along than the amount of control which they implied that they had over it, which then sets considerable limits on your options. The other thing I think that was important, uh, starting again with uh, Rich Falkenrath's intelligence briefing, is your first facts are often wrong. And so the problem of trying to get good scenarios and develop options uh, has to be in the context that you really not only don't know, but what you think you know. Rich said what you know, what you don't know, and what you assess. Some of what you think you know, you may not. And that's particularly true when we have as we have to do, have intelligence liaisons with other countries. And the Pakistani ISI, their intelligence branch of the military, has an agenda of its own. So when they pass information to you, you're not sure what that information really means. And I think Rich did a good job of suggesting that, but it does mean that as you're developing scenarios, you have to take that into account. When you go to the scenarios, I think Suzanne was very good in saying, that um, it really, there are two major scenarios. One is if it's a coup at the top. In other words, if this is something where another general is taking over from Musharraf, and it's another conservative Sunni general, then I think Rich has probably got the easiest scenario. Then support him right away. Forget about Shawkat Aziz. Citibank notwithstanding, and this guy is, Shawkat Aziz is a very good, smooth man, but he doesn't have the support. If you're worried about stability in the nuclear weapons, you've got to solidify that next general. For what it's worth, when we've talked with Indians about this, and let me tell you, the Indians have a strong incentive to watch this more closely than anybody. The Indians believe that if Musharraf is assassinated, the next two or three people in line will be similar to Musharraf. If that's the case, then getting behind that person and not launching all these big options and putting the ships at sea and and getting people spun up uh, might be the right thing to do. If, on the other hand, Suzanne's second scenario is true, and this is one of the first things then we want to find out about, is if this is a coup that's lower in the military, so you have fragmentation of the military, 
Then what you want to do is figure out who can you help if you go in. And there you're going to need to keep India out, as the panelists or as this NSC properly uh, suggested, but you can only keep India out if you suggest and demonstrate that you're doing something about it. And then you have to figure out, are you going to use Shaka disease to invite you in, knowing that once you do so, you've destroyed what little legitimacy has left, but at least it gives you the invitation, or are you going to look for another general uh, and help him with his faction in the army against the other faction in the army? If there is an al-Qaeda cell within the ISI, which has launched this coup at a lower level, then if you hadn't get any information on this, you can probably get a lot more international support. The Russians, the Chinese, not to mention uh, the Europeans, uh, particularly the Brits, but even the Egyptians, and having an Islamic country involved would be important, may be willing to help you. You then might be able to get some sort of a resolution under Chapter 7 of the UN that this is an international emergency and that sending in not just a unilateral mission but a group of troops uh, might then have a degree of legitimization, which it otherwise wouldn't have. But again, this depends on what you think is happening. And you don't want to set your military in action for this before you know which of these scenarios you're going down. You may get them ready. You may preposition them. But then even when you do, you have the danger, as was pointed out by Rich's colloquy with Mike, uh, that you may be single, sending a signal when you don't want to be sending a signal. So there are, the, the scenario that was played out here was quite realistic, quite well done by the participants. Um, I think the, uh, a few lessons that, are, that might be drawn are notice how important military, military relations are. If you're not getting good intelligence, but you have a colonel who's been working with another colonel in training in such and such a base, and you get on back channels to him, you can maybe find out what's happening in the Pakistani military better than your formal intelligence assets can tell you. So sometimes people say, oh, you know, these military to military, we're getting in bed with all these bad guys. Let me tell you, if you're in bed with them, you'll find out something. And uh, <laughs> it's extremely important that we keep these military to military relations. The second thing is we want to keep the Indians out. Everybody agreed on that. And it's crucial because the last thing you want is this for it to escalate to nuclear weapons use between two nuclear armed states where there's a lack of knowledge of how well controlled their weapons are. Um, but that requires us to have a continuing strategic dialogue with the Indians. And to the credit of the Bush administration, they have been doing a good job on this, of developing a strategic dialogue where we and the Indians talk and say, Pakistan is not like the old days where you were aligned with the Russians and Pakistan was aligned with us. You Indians and we Americans have a common problem. We have to make sure this doesn't happen in Pakistan. That takes a lot of talk in advance so that when a crisis like this occurs, you can quickly get to the right people and start talking about don't go in because it's not in your interest. We will do this and so forth. Another thing I think that was interesting was the little colloquy about homeland security which then gets into the question of if you're alerting people to dealing, let's say, with more problems with airports or ports, what are you going to say publicly? Are we going to play games with colors? Presumably not. 
Uh, but if you don't, and rumors start going from some port official who talks to USA Today who says, you know, they've just increased security here, how are you going to handle that? I think we needed a little bit, uh, a little bit more on that. And uh, in general, the question of what the public statement should be, I think Michael Hanlon was absolutely right. The president has to speak on this quickly. Presumably, he should have spoken on it eight hours before and done the two-minute speech that Mike mentioned. If he hasn't, he's got to do it right away. And what he should say is what Mike said. This is a matter of considerable importance. We're watching extremely closely. We don't feel any immediate threat to the United States, but we're consulting with our allies and others to make sure that we're on top of the problem. That should have been said 12 hours ago, but hasn't been said. The first thing you do with the president after you brief him is get him on the tube and say that. In any case, those are the, the, those are the thoughts that I had in listening to this simulation and having thought about this problem since 1979 uh, and fictionalized it, but this was a pretty good fiction right here. Uh, what the moral of all this story is, is that uh, we ought to be thinking about a policy toward Pakistan which makes sure that we never have to sit around and do this. We should be thinking of a policy toward Pakistan today that goes from everything from education and aid and alliance and military to military relations to make sure that we never have a group of people who are stuck with this scenario, and let's hope that's the case. But in any case, these people have done very well. We have, uh, I gather, uh, Liz, we have a few minutes for questions from the floor. Uh, if people have questions, then I will recognize them. You can direct them to a member of the panel if you wish. Yes. Uh, I have a general question. Uh, since it's a mock National Security Council, so you can assume I am the foreign minister of Pakistan. <laughs> <laughs> I would like to go one step further. It was a very good discussion with all the facts laid bare before us. It could become realistic, and let's go one step further that it has become realistic. One happy scenario could be that an army general most likely has taken over, already gone on the Pakistan TV, had issued a statement that all the nuclear assets are safe, command and control is safe, and China has already acknowledged that and has given recognition to the new general in power. Let's go one step further. Let's say those militant or Islamic groups, both in the army or in the political parties, which are their part of Pakistan for the last 60 years, will be there for the next 60. Let's assume they have actually taken over through a variety of methods, uh, through coup, control of those assets. And then the worst scenario is that even the Al-Qaeda-backed groups have already slipped with some of the nuclear material outside Pakistani physical borders. And we ourselves do not know the physical location of those assets, neither does the CIA from the United States. Right. In that case, what alternatives are left for the United States? And the third would be that even if things are within the country and they are in a state of chaos, is military intervention in a large country of the size of 50% of the U.S. population can be feasible, particularly in that part where India and Iran are next door and the China is sitting on the top. So those issues should also be addressed rather than walking straight into Afghanistan and Iraq as we have done 
so far. Okay, so this is a scenario in which a general gets control, but he's not one of the four or five Sunni conservatives that are predicted. He is a radical leftist with ties to al-Qaeda. Um, Steve, you're the NSC advisor. You've pulled this group together. Can you answer that question? <laughs> I pulled this group together precisely to have them answer these kinds of questions. <laughs> uh, I, I, I would just say very briefly that uh, we would be uh, in a state of advanced alert uh, at home because of the risk that material might be smuggled uh, into our country. We'd step up intelligence collection, and I assume that we would press our contacts elsewhere in the Pakistani military uh, to see if we could um, assist in some way the reestablishment of a moral equilibrium within the Pakistani military, if I can put it that way. Okay, another question. Um, yes. I realize that this is a firefighting exercise, and the focus is very much on the control of nuclear materials. But I'd like to push the scenario a little bit further, especially with regard to China is that one can make an argument that the Chinese may want the situation, say, in a one-month time frame, to be as messy as possible. And the reason is because with all the military assets of the U.S., like the various aircraft carriers and so on, being focused on Pakistan, you would make it more feasible for them to launch an attack on Taiwan. And if that happens, how would this group respond? Okay, let's ask... Uh... <laughs> Let's ask our intelligence, let's ask our intelligence chief, director of national intelligence, will the Chinese respond in a way which makes this worse so that it gives them a free hand on Taiwan? I, I, I'm not a China expert, but I don't think so. I think that they'd be profoundly threatened by this uh, set of developments and that although they would be hesitant to authorize or um, acquiesce in any kind of international intervention in the internal affairs of Pakistan, they would probably be fairly helpful. Further, they will be embarrassed because it's going to come out that they actually assisted Pakistan in the production of this material that might now be uh, in an al-Qaeda caravan moving into Afghanistan. In fact, it's a Chinese design in the bomb, uh, but that's ancient history. Uh, other questions? Yes. Uh, I'm struck by the contrast between uh, Secretary Rice's speech about how you need to uh, push lib that liberty is needed for stability and that you can't be in a position of just looking for stability. And Put the mic close to your... And the immediate decision here that, hell with the civilian leadership, we have to talk to the Army right away. <laughs> All right, let's, uh, let's, ask, let's ask Secretary Nossel... Um, what role does promotion of democracy and liberty have when you're in a situation like this? If you've let it get this far, what does the kinds of things that the Secretary spoke about this afternoon have to do with it? I think it's necessarily, in a situation just like this, secondary at a meeting like this. And that's not to say uh, it's not primary in our relationship uh, you know, with Pakistan right now or you know, two years after, a year after this scenario gets resolved. But I think in a situation like this, 
you really are not going to. You, the United States is not in a position to uh, anoint its chosen uh, successor to Musharraf, and we have a very direct interest in immediate stability at Pakistan for decades as a country where the military has been the only unifying, stabilizing force. And I don't think you're not going to change that overnight in a crisis situation. Uh, well, we have too many other too many other questions. I'm sorry, but after afterwards, I'm sure you can. Badger people as long as, as they'll. <laughs> um, no, I mean, I take that seriously, that you can, I press Suzanne on that. But uh, Ambassador Spires actually uh, has been in Pakistan. Yes, I must say I was very uncomfortable with this discussion as a former Assistant Secretary of State for Intelligence and Ambassador to Pakistan. And I would say that in the real world, I would have had a cable into the president within 15 minutes, proposing that he get on the phone right away with uh, Putin, who, the who. <laughs> uh, That's uh, Hu Jintao. Uh, Mubarak, <laughs> Blair, and Chirac, and ask them to join in a, in a joint day march by the ambassadors to Shakudo, Aziz, assuming he's still alive. And I think that, that the group would have more intelligence than they give, than they expect on specific people in the military and specific people in their orientation in ISI in the event that, uh, that Shakud Aziz, who after all is the prime minister and would be the natural successor, even though it's probable that ultimately another general or a political leader would take hold. And uh, it would all go a lot quicker than uh, a discussion like this several days afterwards. Okay, let's uh, ask NSC advisor Simon, uh, why weren't these contacts with other countries uh, higher on the list, higher on the priorities? Why wasn't it done already, or why wasn't that one of the first things that you thought about as this group met? Mort didn't write the scenario. <laughs> no, we did yeah. actually, when we were planning this, we did talk about whether those consultations would have taken place before this meeting, and the direction was to come into this meeting assuming that that hadn't happened yet. So I, I, I actually I agree with uh, what was said by the ambassador. Rich? You know, well, the other point is the, the Intelligence Committee has big charts with biographies of every leader in the Pakistani government and their histories, and, and that's all there. I just didn't want to start making up and throwing out names. Uh, they have that. The other fact, though, uh, is uh, I think that we wouldn't know for sure what was going on, given all the certainties. There wouldn't, if we had to, we, we didn't know, it was the right thing to advise in, at that phase that we don't know for sure who is behind, what is going on there, if it's a coup, and if it's a coup, who's behind it, and who's next in line. And until we know for sure, we need to not just act on our assumptions and what some desk officer for Pakistan wrote down in this last org chart of the Pakistani military. And Ron, as a former chair of the National Intelligence Council, which obviously you knew a lot about and worked with, um, what struck me is that many of these things that we had about biographies and so forth often weren't quite right. There were, there were problems that, uh, that came up. We have a question here in the middle. Yeah. I have a question for the military establishment. You talked about troops in Af 
in Afghanistan. What you didn't talk about was the fact that we have an enormous amount of our military tied down in Iraq. And I wonder if you would raise that question. And then because we also have, at this particular moment, a lot of our troops doing domestic duty in the Gulf. What effect does that have? General Gordon, how much uh, uh, is our deployment in Iraq and in Louisiana uh, restraining the kinds of options that you talked about? Good question. I actually talked to some experts about this, if we would be overstretched if this scenario were to come to fruition. And the answer was no, that uh, we have the special forces elements available. Uh, clearly, it would uh, put some pressure in Afghanistan on us, but we still have both operational and strategic assets, especially given, the, especially given this sort of scenario where initially um, our military response would be fairly limited in the number of troops if you were not to believe uh, that we would go in with this huge force and we would have to move towards some sort of stabilization immediately. Um, so the bottom line answer is yes, we could handle it. One of the issues, though, is the status of those nuclear weapons, of which we don't know, because that would also determine if we were to move forward militarily how we would handle it. And what I mean by that is, are, are the nuclear weapons such that they are PAL-protected? In other words, protected from actually being put together and fired. Um, are they, can they be heated up? In other words, can be, they be operationalized and used? Because that would dictate clearly the rapidity by which we might respond and some of the assets we would use. Bottom line is, though, we could handle this. Last question will be in the very back. Uh, all the way back. Yeah. Um, I'm struck by um, two things. I'm from Pakistan, by the way. <laughs> Um, the first is it's just over 50 years since Pakistan and the United States signed their first military cooperation agreement. And many hundreds of young Pakistani officers were brought to the United States and trained here. Four years later, we had our first military coup, and they ruled for 10 years, supported by the United States. And when that military government ended, another general took over, and then we had a civil war. The second coup we had was by somebody who was trained in the United States also, General Zia. And he ruled for 10 years, and he brought us the jihad, and he was supported by the United States. Now we have General Musharraf, and he's being supported by the United States, and he's well on his way to 10 years also. And when he was here recently, he gave an interview to the Washington Post in which he said that when he met President Bush, President Bush didn't mention anything to him about restoring democracy in Pakistan. So my question is, how many times is the United States going to go through the same process of looking for a general to support? Because each time the conflict between the people that run the country and the people of the country becomes more acute. And this time, the debate in Pakistan is premised on a huge caution about the United States. And if you read the Pakistani papers, there are many commentators who are considering exactly this scenario, that the Americans are coming for us this time. 
And I think you have to ask yourselves in this question and this kind of debate that even if people in the U.S. don't remember history, people in Pakistan do. Thank you for a good question. It, it, I, I should, uh, let me just, in answering it, say it relates to the earlier question about democracy and the rhetoric that the Secretary Rice used this afternoon. When you get to a situation like the one that is simulated here, where it's a question of survival, a deepest security interest at stake, there's not much time to think about democracy. You're going to say, which of these, if there's a general who can provide stability and keep the weapons out of al-Qaeda's hands, that we will do that. I think the point that I was trying to say when I wrapped up my comments, and which goes to the question that was asked earlier, is we should never let ourselves get into a situation where that's the only option. In other words, we should be working on the relationship with Pakistan now so that this scenario doesn't occur. If this scenario occurs, it will be another general. But in one of the things we've tried to do in our discussions, our strategic discussions with the Indians, is to say to the Indians, instead of always thinking about the problems of Pakistan and how you keep the Pakistanis down, you and we should be making sure that three years, five years, but certainly 10 years from now, we're not faced with a Pakistan like the Pakistan of today. We should be developing the conditions in which this type of scenario doesn't occur. And that, I think, is the deficiency in our policy. Anyway, for this group, for the panel, our NSC group, uh, thank you all very much. I want to... I want to add my thanks and also thank Elizabeth Colajuri, class of MPA class of 1999, who was responsible for setting this up uh, and bringing this to you. So we. And now, having given you intellectual sustenance all afternoon, it's time for a drink. And Ruth Miller, the director of the 75th anniversary celebrations, is going to tell you how to get one. Well, you have two choices. You could go to the annex and get a beer. <laughs> or you could come to our reception, which is in the Carl Icahn, in the lobby of the Carl Icahn Laboratory. Uh, many of you here will not know where that is because it's a fairly new building. It is straight down Washington Road. Um, you'll pass the Frist Campus Center, which again wasn't here when many of you were here. Um, and it's about two buildings on. There, it, there should be signage that will tell you how to get there. Um, I hope that all of you will come, and I hope that you'll come to the events tomorrow, starting with breakfast at 8.30, um, a panel in here on Homeland Security at 10.30, um, a real treat at noon, when our own Lieutenant General, Dave Petraeus, will talk about his, will be speaking right here and will talk about his time in Iraq and, and policy issues related to that. Um, there'll be a box lunch in Schultz, and then at two, um, 
Director, uh, Secretary of Homeland Security Michael Chertoff will speak in Dodd's Auditorium at Robertson Hall. But in the meantime, the reception starting in about 10 minutes from now at 7 o'clock um, down the hall in the lobby of the Carl Icahn Building. I'll see you all there.